Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today was a veteran at Nintendo for 15 years. He is a great game designer, worked on games such as Darksiders 3, Rise, Son of Rome, and of course, Metroid Prime Hunters. I'd like to welcome the mighty Richard Verodi. How you doing? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me, Reese. <laughs> no problem, no problem. I uh, I find your story at Nintendo incredibly fascinating because a lot of people don't know, but you were a help desk guy before you were a game designer, right? And then yeah. you and then you applied uh, for a job as a game designer. And I know you spent a hell of a lot of time fine tuning your CV. What were the specific things that you were doing that you really spend on your CV trying to get it right to make sure that you got that job? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't, I had nothing on my CV at that point. Um, I had uh, some, I had a few months of DigiPen under my belt that that I, the school that I was uh, working at or learning at, and uh, and so when the opportunity for a junior designer popped up. I was like, well, what can I do to leverage any of the stuff I've learned, you know? Uh, and um, it, it really was a lot of massaging and a lot of really came down to just a, essentially a really um, thoughtful letter to Nintendo saying, this is why I think I'd be an incredible uh, designer for you guys that, you know, uh, uh, put some faith in me, give me a chance. And, and, and you know, I, I won't, I won't uh, steer you wrong. How long was the letter? Was it like a page letter? Uh, yeah, I think it was like a page or a page and a half, something like that. I didn't want it to be too long-winded, but I wanted there to be enough of, of like the real good stuff, you know? Fair enough. So when you were given the task of doing Metro Prime Hunters, how much of a clean slate were you given? Like how much information did Tanabe-san give you, for example? Yeah, it, you know, one of the really cool things about working um, at NST was that a lot of times uh, early on, the projects that we were given, they, they always were based off an existing um, template, I guess, that you could go on. So um, for 1080, you know, we were making a sequel to 1080. Um, and Wave Race, we had the, the sequel to, to Wave Race. And so when it came time to do a Metroid, well, we knew Metroid Prime was out and existed, and we had all played that and loved it. But the difference here was like, well, now we're making a portable version of Metroid. So it can't really be like the sit-down, long-play form um, that Metroid Prime was doing on the GameCube. Um, and so really, they Nintendo was just like, hey, why don't you take some time, think about what would be the best expression of Metroid or Metroid Prime um, on the DS? And that's how we ended up coming up with um, you know, the bounty system and uh, quick-play multiplayer, pop in and pop out. Um, and that, that was really, that, yeah, I mean, basically everything started from that point. What is a quick, portable expression of Metroid? Because mm. how much time did you spend crafting the story and the lore? Because there's a lot of it, right? <laughs> Particularly yeah. on the lore front. Yeah. Yeah, the lore, lore is a lot of fun to, to write. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I would say basically a day would be broken up to where, um, okay, I'm putting power-ups you know, adjusting power-ups, massaging uh, corridors and stuff like that after playtests. Uh, and then, okay, well, while that, it, while people are playtesting that, I'll go in and just start writing more stuff. I've got this whole uh, Excel, you know, spreadsheet of stuff that, that needs fiction. So I'm just going to start writing it. And, and I, 
I worked with a, um, a comic book writer named John Lehman, and he would come in, uh, you know, a couple times a week and he'd sit and we would just do this big info dump on, on lore and fiction. And, and, uh, it was great. We, you know, we'd brainstorm names together and we'd come up with all kinds of neat stuff. Sometimes I would write, um, something and then turn it over to him and then he would make it really nice. And, or sometimes he'd come in with something and I go, well, ah, it's not quite Metroid. Maybe we can adjust it this way or that way, or, or actually that's really interesting, but if we tweak it a little bit, we can actually have it sort of tie into some other existing fiction that you might not know about, you know, that happened in some other games. And so um, that was a great, great part of the process, actually. What was the, in terms of the law, was there something in particular that took you the longest to kind of really nail and pin down? The hunters themselves. Yeah. Coming up with their backs. You know, I, 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 I always knew, I, well, no, I should say, I always hoped that they would have life outside of the DS game. And uh, one of our bounty hunters, Silex, happened to, to, to escape out and, and show up in other times, which is great, hmm. uh, because Silex actually has some of the coolest um, background fiction that, so like, there is a Bible of Metroid. And when you start on the project, you're gonna be given this Bible. And inside is, is all the behind the scenes, top secret information you're gonna know and just so you know how to write for the character, how to plan for the character, even if you can't put any of that information in the game. And so I got to come up with some of that stuff. Uh, and I would love to tell you what's going on under that suit. There is some, that is a cool character. Yeah. So did you, I mean, did Tanabe ever plan on using, using Silux in other games? Did he already always intend for that to happen? Or is that kind of something that you found out just from playing the games later on? You're like, ah. Oh. Okay, he's included. Yeah, I you know we had heard rumblings about it, and then when we found out he was in in Prime Three, we were really excited about it. I was like, Tommy, I had no idea, you know, um, but because he he had mentioned it, you know, during the development that he he wanted to pick a couple of them um, to move on and to to you know pepper the universe and um, for future games, and uh, but he always tended. Like Silex, for whatever reason, I don't. There was something about that character, either the way you know the 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 silhouette of the character, or the colors, or something about that character, uh, really spoke to Tanabe. And so I think that was probably his favorite. I think that's why Silex showed up in the other games. Mm. Was it always the intention to kind of have the the hunters always use the prime colors in terms of their look? Yeah, you know, again, going back to what I was saying about what is the best expression of Metroid on a, on a portable machine, um, you know, the hunters themselves start with just a color. It's just like, okay, well, what is what color is Weevil? Boom. What color is Spire? You know, Trace. And then, okay, great. Now what's their silhouette, right? And the silhouettes and the colors were the most important part of designing them because we didn't really have a lot of pixels to play with. Um, on the DS. And so especially when you have a game that features a sniper rifle, I mean, you're like, if you're really in a sniping position, some of those characters are just going to be five jiggling pixels away. And so, you know, you're not going to be able to know what shape they are. So they need to be a recognizable color right off the bat. So, you know, you're not shooting your friend that you're shooting the guy you want. And so we looked at silhouettes and colors as, as the prime way to um, overcome uh, technical limitations, you know, of the resolution. Mm. Was there anything in particular you were inspired by when you when you're coming up with some of these names? 
like Noxus and Trace and Weevil? Because coming yeah. up with a name yeah. must be hard, right? Because do you, I mean, do you just stick with one name, or do you change the name through development? Yeah, a few of them. You know, we had we had this cool list of names. Uh, hopefully, they get used uh, again in, in another game. But um, you know, some of them just everyone really liked and we had them for a long time in the game and then um you know you do a worldwide copyright search and you realize well there's a, a an oat brand cereal that happens to feature one of your hunter names and you're like what in the world would they you know <laughs> kriken flakes and you're like what is this and so uh then we have to lose it or, or change it um you know noxus originally his name was nox but we were able to change it enough uh and, and so we turn it into noxus that we were able to keep essentially the the spirit of the name but you know some things um you know just were uh selfish things on my part that are just words that just have always been that i don't know just stuck in my head like uh, as a kid i remember i got pinched by a little weevil bug and i just remember hearing like i didn't even know what it was but i remember hearing the word weevil it's like that's a weevil bug and me associating that word with that uncomfortable alien situation I felt just always stuck with me. And I was like, that's, that is going to be a great name for a thing I wouldn't want to run into in the deepest reaches of space at ah, Weevil. All right. That's, that's Weevil. And then we're going to make Weevil uncomfortable. Like he made me, you know, and, um, and like the Tetra galaxy was, you know, one day I was sitting and, and, uh, and one of the guys in the office had this incredible fish tank at his desk and he had the crabs and it was, I think it, it was a freshwater tank, but it was, it was really beautiful. And it wasn't like a cheap little gold fish tank. It was, it was really small. And I remember being really excited about that. And uh, so then I started getting into like little office fish tanks. And then I had this, this, this giant tank or the small tank full of all these little tetras. And they're these beautiful little neon, like pink and blue fish. And they were swimming around and, and doing fine. And then we finally, like, they started to die off little by little. And, um, and then eventually there was the five. It was the tetras. You know, it was, it was five tetras. So five fives, right? So I was like, the tetra galaxy, this is perfect. And, like, it just, because it just got me thinking, you know. Um, so, so not all of the names are as, I don't know. I don't know what, where you think names come from, but they're always from that magical place sometimes they come from a fish tank you know sometimes they come from you know uh, a, a young boy's traumatic experience with nature <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well it's it's pretty funny that you mentioned the the uh the weevil being so traumatic and yet it's it's your favorite hunter isn't it weevil's your favorite hunter. yeah absolutely the irony yeah. yeah exactly yeah why is he your favorite hunter curious I just think he looks cool. Uh, I think, um, you know, there's some fiction there, which is kind of neat, which is that him and Samus met each other on Brinstar. Um, so he's one of the original pirates um, in the first Metroid game mm. uh, that, that Samus fights. I, you know, in the game, you wouldn't notice him. They didn't really have NPCs then. But if that game were to get, a you know, a, a remake, like a Zero Mission or something like that, um uh, like a, a, a you know a new one uh you would you would see weevil there and it would be a much more important uh person in that world like a, a sub sub character but what i thought was neat was that we could take this the spirit of this guy 
that was in the original, o- only in only in revision, right? And come back and sort of uh, put boots on the ground in a, in a new Metroid game. It, it felt cool. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned remakes. Would you want Metroid Prime Hunters to get the whole remake treatment with uh, maybe like HD graphics and a, a, contr- a different control scheme? You know, the selfish side of me would say no. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, it's it's perfect the way it is. It's my but game. no, yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, you know, it's that's the thing. It's not like it. it's it's the world's game, and it's it's you know, if if they're it's it's actually incredibly flattering. You know, if if there is an audience for that game, um, if there's a way to usher it into the 21st century, you know, uh, or the you know post-pandemic world uh that'd be great that'd be great to see those guys at full resolution it'd be great to see the ponytails swinging it'd be great to you know there's so there's been so many advances i mean first person shooters probably more than any other genre has seen the most growth you know sure um so i it would be yeah it would be unbelievable to see how that game would play today yeah so i'm all for it yeah because i i mean metroid prime hunters really has to this day, still a cult-like following in terms of its multiplayer. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. So that's no, part of the reason why I asked. that's great to hear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's great to hear, yeah. Yeah, you know, we knew we were on to something because uh, we would be playing it all day. Like, we were always playing it. Um, there was always a group of people somewhere in the studio playing it when they should be working. Um, and which was great because all we had was feedback, just a mountain of feedback to tune and tweak and adjust. And that is incredible. Um, You know, because when it comes to game development, you know, you really don't hear from people unless something is broken. Um, You know, you'll just hear this doesn't work or that doesn't work. It's, it's hard to hear that, Hey, this is so incredibly fun, or this is so great when this happens. Um, and also this is broken and this is broken, but more of this, keep doing more of this. Like I'm excited to see more of this. And, and um, that was really the, one of the first and only times that I've ever worked on a game where that was the case, you know, um, usually, and, and also people are just so busy working that it's hard to, to carve out time to play the game. You know, generally, the game designer has to carve the time. That's our job is to, you know, to, to test the soup as we're making it, right? Mm. Um, and we want every, and ideally every, every person in every department would do that. But sometimes, you know, they're just under the gun and they just, they just really can't give it an honest shakedown. Um, and in this case, people were just, you know, they'd rather play it than make it. And that was, that felt great, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the whole negativity thing is part of game design. So if negativity, because negativity tends to get amplified so much, right? It gets amplified so much and you don't really hear a lot of the positive stuff. Is it hard to try and keep that morale and the energy high? Because you, you, you know, know what I, journalists are like as, as well, right? Is they'll they'll take a negative thing and they'll blow it up into this massive, sure, right, <laughs> massive article. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Reese. That is basically my entire life, like you know, or my entire career. It's 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 how do you how do you balance and um, you know stay stay positive when it's just it's constantly raining on you. 
Um, for me personally, I don't, it's not that hard because um, I wouldn't have this job if I, if I couldn't maintain a vision and, and, uh, and be able to see the long view, you know? Mm. Um, so the build might be terrible this week. You know, it might be bad for the next couple of weeks because we're working on a new system uh, that's breaking all the current systems. But we know once that new system gets in place, we're going to be able to do X, Y, and Z to improve the game. Well, that's something that I'm privy to, that I can see. Like I have the highest seat on the team, so I can see the furthest out. Like I'm in the crow's nest. Mm. Um, if you're down in the boiler room, you see what's right in front of your face. And so if something's upsetting you, you're not going to be able to see past what's upsetting you. Um, and so I, my job is to just basically empathize and just, and basically just let every, you know, let the team know, Hey, I hear what you're saying. And also I didn't know about this, but I did know about that. Um, and this is a great idea that we might not be able to do because X, Y, and Z, but don't worry because here's what's coming down the pike and you're going to really like it, or this is what's going to make the game so much better. Um, Cause you're kind of like a cheerleader when you're a designer. You know, totally. Um, you're if 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 I'm uh, if I'm having a bad day or if I'm having um, uh, you know a, if if my opinion of the game is is bad, then that will negatively impact the team. They're not excited. But if I show that I'm really excited and and that there's there's reason and and uh, to be excited and the work that they're doing is making it better and better and better, that just becomes infectious and people want to give their all. When they know that it's being, you know, the work is being appreciated, and that um, it's having a, a tangible effect on the game, and I think um, as a when you're making a game, the one of the best skills you could have um, as a leader is is showing a tangible reason how somebody's work makes the game better. Don't just go, oh, you know, you're a really great artist. We're happy to have you. You know, like I would dig down and go, you know. Those blades of grass that you did look incredible. They changed how it, how how running feels for me now. Now the the running and the in the field feels so much softer on the for the hero or that or that the sharp rocks that you did. I'll tell you exactly why that's that makes that more painful for the player because when they get on that soft grass, they really feel that grass now. You know things like that um, that might sound minor and trivial, but that's this is what these are people's passions. There is a guy who makes rocks the best he can and a guy that makes, or a girl who makes the grass the best they can. And that matters, you know? And so it's silly to have this conversation, but those, those things matter. One of the things I did want to ask you about was with Metroid Prime Hunters, you guys opted to use pre-rendered cutscenes as opposed to in-engine cutscenes, which is not really a Nintendo thing to do. And I would think that pre-rendered cutscenes would be more costly than in-game engine cutscenes. Is that true? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, definitely. There's a there's a higher cost. Um, around that time, Nintendo was starting to, um, I think, take advantage of their higher media capacity. Um, you know, the obviously the the micro DVDs on the GameCube and the um, the little SD cards, the NAND cards that we had for the DS. Um, you know, the DS itself wouldn't really provide for much in the way of a great real-time cinematic if you're going for uh, a realistic look like Metroid was. Mm. For something like Mario, that's that's a lot, you know, um, cartoony graphics are a lot more forgiving of lower, um, you know, quality hardware or lower 
not quality, but you know what I'm saying? Processing <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah. Um, and, and so um, Nintendo had this great company that they were working with and um, they made, they made the cutscenes for us. They're fantastic. Um, we ended up working with them again um, when, when we were uh, working on project hammer That's um, right. and they did cutscenes for us, which was, which was really cool. So, yeah. Hmm. I mean, do you have a personal preference in game engine versus pre-rendered? I mean, I think I think my preference would have been pre-rendered for the DS for sure. Um, in-game uh, is always going to be my preference if the the hardware can actually you know produce a nice a nice quality uh, image. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I assume you've played Metroid Dread. Uh, yeah, I played. I played. I played a good amount of it. I haven't finished it yet. It's uh, unfortunately it's on this pile of games. That so basically, I start a game for a couple hours, and then I go, "Oh, this is great! I could play more of this." And I'm like, "Yeah, but I also have this other game that I'm in progress on." I'm like, "Let me sit this down for a couple minutes, and then try to go back to this." Like games are so long today that I don't know totally. how anything gets done. Like. That is something I would like to say is that I am all about short games or, or <laughs> like these games that are 500 hours, man. I know there's people that enjoy them, but who's got the time, man? Yeah. You know, like there's so many other pursuits that I'd like to follow and I'm just trapped on my couch, you know, delivering the last bottle of milk to this farmer. I just can't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, totally. I understand. And as a as a game developer, I mean, it's not like game developers have short hours either. So you guys are designing a game, and then you've got to try and stay up with what's going on by playing games as well. Yeah. Uh, so so I have no idea how yeah. you guys managed to do it. It's tough, man. And and you know, and I think there's like a dirty secret anyway. And and is I mean, if you because if you look at achievements, you know, on on Steam, because you can look at the general percentage of things. Mm. nobody's finishing these games like nobody you know mm. like you you'll you'll find a game that's been out for a month and only a third of its of its audience or like or the the people that bought it have even completed like the first boss or the first section of the game and these are people that own it and so you're just like hmm you know like either they have that same problem that i do where they're like they're they play it for a night and they're really excited and then they feel guilt from this other thing that they have in progress and they put it down or or people are just constantly like, oh, bird, bird, you know, like they're just off to the next thing. So who knows, but shorter games, please. Anyway. Support for this episode of Kiwi Talks is proudly brought to you by Manscaped, who offer you the best precision tools for below the waist grooming. But today I want to talk about something else, which is the weed whacker. Now, oftentimes I hear from females, they're like, ooh, I went on this date and this guy, he had like hairs in his nostrils. Well, men, you won't have to have that problem anymore with this amazing tool right here. You just stick it up your nostrils and boom, hair's gone. Stick it in your ears, boom, hair gone. And this amazing tool you can buy separately or part of the amazing Performance Package 4.0, which includes the Lawnmower 4.0, great trimmer, the Crop Preserver and Reviver, which are great creams and deodorant to put on your testes comes with jocks and a travel bag as well. For this amazing deal, all you need to do is go to manscaped.com and use the code KiwiTalks for 20% off plus free shipping. I've read online and I'm very skeptical when I read anything online, but apparently I read that uh, space combat was supposed to be part 
of the initial design in Metro Prime Hunt? Was it ever considered or was it something that was just an idea or brainstormed and then just dropped for whatever reason? You know, it, it could have been. Um, maybe that was something that, you know, one of us just joked about. Um, it's been so long. I don't remember. I really don't think that that was anything we seriously would have felt like we had time to, to pull off in a, in a meaningful way. Um, I know we, it was important, uh, to, to, to myself to show some of the ships in the game. Um, and that's why there is that sequence with Silex's ship. Um, but that, that is a, that is far different animal than space combat for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Did you find it jarring at all when you moved from Nintendo onto other gaming studios? Because I've spoken to some ex-devs and obviously Nintendo has a very unique design philosophy compared to a lot of other gaming companies. So were you able to kind of just jump ship and it be okay? Or did it take, take you a while to kind of uh, learn the different work cultures? Yeah, uh, so I began my career... Um, learning sort of the Eastern design philosophy, I'd say, um, which is really function or form follows function, Mm. right? Um, And so, uh, you know, a good good example is, um, you know, like the turtles in Super Mario Brothers, they have spikes on their back. It's because um, we, Mr. Miyamoto wanted a turtle that you couldn't jump on, right? Mm. Um, And it would hurt you. But why is that turtle have spikes? I don't know. We'll, the form of, we'll figure that out later, but like, we know we want some turtles to jump on and some turtles we don't makes the game more interesting. Um, in the Western style of design, um, it tends to form tends to lead the way and then function kind of follows. So some, so what I've seen, uh, some of examples are somebody, some, uh, concept artist creates this super badass character and you're like, that's, that looks, that's amazing. Let's get this in the game. What's he do? I I don't know. We'll figure that out, you know? Um, And so then, you know, you get it in the game and you're like, well, yeah, like these aren't these tiny arms he has in front, like they look cool, but like they can't hurt the player. So how does he attack? You know, it's like, I don't know, figure it out, you know? So it it ends up creating, like, it's a great thing that looks incredible on screen, but isn't a really compelling character. So, um, uh, you know, so there's pros and cons though, um, to, to both. Uh, I think, um, you know, I think Nintendo is the greatest developer on the, on the planet. Um, I, I'm always going to have a soft spot in my heart for them. They taught me everything I know. Um, I love them. And, um, but I've been having a great time, uh, down here in Texas, you know, doing it the American way and, and just trying something different. Um, because, it is cool when you start to have grander ideas or visions for stories or worlds and you want to do more storytelling. I think Western development allows for more of that. Um, and cause it's, it's not so gameplay centric. It doesn't mean that gameplay takes a backseat. It just means that the gameplay doesn't have to define the story. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think, uh, there's something really, really fun about that. And, and um, I think that's why you're seeing a lot of the heavily cinematic type of games coming out, uh, out of the Western design philosophy. And that's starting to like, you know, and not to say that, that Japan doesn't have, you know, great stories in their games and things like that. That's not to say that at all. But 
Um, I think things come things coming out of here have more of a cinematic quality. And I think that's maybe just uh, more storytellers in the designers out here than, say, in the Eastern Front. Yeah, and that makes sense. And uh, how much of that was incorporated, I suppose, into Darksiders 3? Because obviously it's inspired by Metroid in some regard, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, what was your approach with with that game? Were you trying to, like, was there a, a kind of a balancing act between you want to incorporate Metroid stuff, um, having kind of a Western philosophy as well, and just yeah. trying to get that balance exactly right? Yeah, I think, you know, and that's a, that's a fun example, I think, um, where, where the, the two styles were, were clashing, um, where someone, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I would like to, to, um, you know, what I think would be great for this product is we have this really um, interconnected world, you know, um, call it like a, a Swiss cheese, where it's like, there's a lot of opportunities to see through the levels into other other locations and maybe think that there's a way to get there. Um, and so as we were building the world, you know, we were putting gameplay first, um, you know, Oh, you know, this should be where the lava is because th this is where we want to have more of a, um, uh, uh, you know, I guess like traversal puzzle, uh, section. Um, and this is where we would like to have more of the, um, more of the combat, or this is where we'd like to have ice, or this is where we'd like to have the sandstorms and things like that, or the water and the swamps. And when we would put that in, it would feel great in the design, but then the practical side was like, we couldn't explain why lava and ice were next to each other and why there was a sandstorm underground. And, and, and where is if this was, um, say, a Nintendo game, they would have no problem with that at all. Right. You know, and Nintendo will put lava wherever it wants to put lava. Um, <laughs> and, but at, at gunfire, it was like, hey, we got to actually think about where that lava is coming from, the source of it, how far it actually could pour up from wherever the source was. And so we need to build the world around that. Um, same thing with uh, water. Like we really literally did think about water tables. So if we said water could get up to this height, we had to understand how water got pumped way up to wherever we were um, or down below. And so all that stuff, there is, a, a, it does impede a little bit, but I think, um, you know, what that did was that, that actually forced us to create a more believable space, even with these um, unbelievable or really exotic elements. At least I think, if you were one of the players that it mattered to, and you took the time to really trace that lava back, you'd find it actually did come from a, a location. And uh, it did drip down and make its way around. And, and that's why you're, you're dealing with it in this room. It wasn't just by magic. You know, it actually had a reason. Now that creates a lot of work on the art team and the design team to figure out. But I think that's kind of maybe representing the next level in game development. Um, in terms of where we start to really take some of the world building more seriously, you know, like, like they do in Hollywood, you know, James Cameron and Avatar, you know, his, his team, I mean, years and built a whole, you know, they know every animal and every plant and it's all categorized and they know the life cycles of things. And so when their characters in the story run up to these, they know exactly how they should behave and how they wouldn't behave. And even if, 
stuff was never even on screen. You never see it. They know because they built a real world. And that's kind of, I wouldn't say we're avatar, but we were, we're bringing in some of that into the game where it's like, yeah, lava did come from a place and the water got here because of this. And this is why this rock, like, um, like if there's a chasm in the game, we know what wiped that out or what caused the, the ground to shift up, you know, um, a loose example, right? Like at least we have some fiction to go. Yeah. I can, I can tell you why this happened. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's, it's, it's a harder way to work, but I think it's, it's, um, it's, I don't know, to me, it feels kind of like a, a sophisticated, like a more sophisticated way to do things now. How much does that add in terms of time, in terms of production, though? Like, say, with the from an environmental standpoint on, say, Prime Hunters, as opposed to an environmental standpoint on Darksiders 3. Two completely different games, two different philosophies. But in, ter- but in terms of how you approach it, how yeah. much does that change the production cycle? You know, it's, well, I guess it, it depends on the production, to be honest, uh, Reese. Like, there's not really a good... It's not apples and, and apples, you know, like in, in Hunters, I might not be worrying about where the lava came from, but I'm worried about how that lava is going to impact the single player playthrough of that map versus the multiplayer playthrough of that map. And so multiplayer and single player had to coexist because we didn't have the bandwidth to just make, you know, an entire single player set of maps. We had to, we had our, our secret ability to have two modes was to try to create uh, maps and multiplayer that felt really great that we could with slight adjustments or small storytelling mechanics here and there create a single player um, experience so it's almost like what we did in Darksiders 3 which is we're coming up with single player gameplay but then we're trying to make sure that a story can be told around the environment so I mean it's really kind of like the same balancing act if you think about it hmm. is it hard to try and come up with um creative ideas in terms of something original when it comes to an environment because it is i suppose it's easy to rest on the laurels of like say the typical ice fire particularly in call of duty everything's brown (laughs) like so how how difficult do you find it to try and think of these unique ideas in terms of uh environmental storytelling yeah there's nothing unique under the sun anymore like there's (laughs) nothing there's nothing original and i mean I'm, I'm the type of person that really does try to reinvent the wheel every time I'm thinking of a design. Um, but the truth is even, you know, there's been so many times I've come up with something on my own and so proud of it and can't wait to, to share it in a design meeting or something. Someone's like, Oh, Simpsons did it. Or, you know, they'll, they'll be that kid or be like, Oh, I saw this in Mario. And I'm like, are you serious? Just like that. Yep. Just like that. And I'm like, ah, so even when you think you've invented your own thing, there's so many people out there solving the same problems. It's we're it's it's a foregone conclusion that most of us will kind of come to the same, you know, the the same answer. Is that uh, demotivating though? Because no. wouldn't it, wouldn't it be like a roller coaster of emotion if you're on this high because you thought you've created something, or you thought you created something original, and then you find out that it's copied from something else or influenced from something uh, else. Okay. Uh, well, so that's a good point, but I would say it's the journey, not the destination, right? It's the, it's the flexing of the creative muscle. Um, but also, Hey, what is portal, uh, except just warp pipes and Mario, 
You know, like there's nothing exciting about that. It's the presentation, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's all presentation. And so even if we have the same ideas, I'm sure there's a way to present it in a, in a fresh way, in a new way. Mm. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. What was, um, what was your experience meeting with, uh, Andrew Jones, Android Jones, as he's known, the concept. Android. Android Jones. Yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, that guy is, he was the most incredible artist I had met up to that point. Um, he was so so a- andrew is uh he was one of the concept artists uh, at retro yeah that's um, right and he, he and he had come up with a lot of the um you know a lot of the tone and look for the the prime series and and the suit as well and um so he came out and it was it was really great and not to say we didn't have amazing artists at nst we totally did um it's just that andrew is like he like that is his character like his his class type in an RPG is like art guy. You know what I mean? Like, like his hair is an art installation. His clothes is an art installation. Like the, and like everything about him is just trying to be not counterculture, but just something that kind of stops and makes you think for a second. And what's really cool about that is that when I would drop off fiction to him and I would say, okay, this is what I've got for Weevil or this is what I've got for whatever. We would read it. We talk about it and say, these are kind of, I think how they would, how they would move. These are, this would be their, their alt form. And he'd go, got it, got it. And then he would just draw outlines. <laughs> he would just whip this stuff up and, and you'd come back in 20, 30 minutes. And here is this living, breathing creature, you know, on a screen that just came from some words that you printed out, you know, on an eight by 11 sheet of paper. And you're like, that's it. There it is. That's the thing. And, and, and it was so, it just was so cool and so exciting. Um, and I think I was such a fan of the prime art style and the prime world building and all that. So to see that in our own studio was almost just maybe kind of like me just being a fan and getting to, you know, see the inside of that. Um, but yeah, it, it, that was great. Um, yeah. Very was, cool. he, was he nailing everything out the gate though? Or were there refinements or iterations? Like he'd submit uh, a piece and then you might be like, well, maybe you can change this. Or would he just get it right first time? No, no, yeah. No, it's <laughs> not like that. Uh, no, I mean, nobody does, right? Uh, because there's always push and pull. Um, uh, but but there would there would be enough. What was great about what he would produce is it would it would it would spur conversation. So even if something you looked at right away you knew wouldn't work it would still become a conversation piece. You're like, well, what if we did try that, but we just did it more like this. Um, and that's what was great about looking at the concepts is because he wouldn't he like, he didn't just create one character, you know, and it just came down from heaven and there it was done. It was, you know, he'd create 12 different silhouettes for the guy and you would blend and you would take those pieces and pull them in and, and, and add and, to, you know, to create the thing. Um, but it was, it, there was always something neat to look at and always something uh, exciting to like, you know, you're always looking forward to the next day. You're like, I wonder what we're going to see today or the next guy to come online. Because when you're, when you're in pre-production and there is nothing on the screen except a few polygons and, you know, uh, a gray box room, when art finally starts coming in, um, it's a great time. Like I remember um, our programmers and our artists were working together and on the morph ball and the day that they finally got like a specular highlight on the morph ball 
like it was a party at the office. It was like the coolest thing we had seen. We had specular highlights on the DS and this morph balls rolling around and we had multiple light sources and, and, you know, our, our team would just like somebody on the team would just get an idea for something and, and, and bring out this one little effect and it would just change all of a sudden the armor shiny, You're like that's Samus. That's really it, you know? And it, it's wonderful. It's great. You know? So anytime stuff is getting built, it's an exciting time. Did you ever take, like, say you might have an original idea for a hunter and then some of that you'd take away from it and maybe put on another hunter? Were there like meshing of ideas or was it kind of just a separate thing? Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, I'm trying to, I I can't, I don't have a good example right now, uh, but I do know that we ended up changing the alt form of one and giving it to the other. It's why it just made more sense for some reason. I can't remember, but I, um, it was like a big deal at the time. It's like, can we do this? Like, is that sacrilege? Like we've had this character this way for so long. And we're just like, oh, it's just, it just plays better if we do that. I can't remember who it was though. Hmm. Cause you guys also had to create morph ball equivalents of all the hunters, right? So was that, was that difficult to think of the, the different ways in terms of how they, they morph? No, that, I mean, I, I'm sure if you and I sat down and came up, we would come up with a bunch of ideas. It's, so it's not hard to generate the ideas um, per se. It's hard to, um, I think the, the challenge comes into how do you balance A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, like how do you get those all to, to work together um, as opposed to just like, oh, this is a cool idea. Like, sure, that might be a great idea. And we make it and we find out it obliterates everything in the game. And nerfing it still doesn't help because now it feels like, you know, if, if you make a giant gun and it shoots like a little pellet, you're going to be like, I can't nerf this thing any further. Why did, why is this a giant gun? This is ridiculous, you know? So, um, so you got to be careful with your visual language. And, um, and so that's really where the challenge comes from. It's like, what's a neat alt form or what's a neat ability that can counter other abilities, but still has a weakness to the rest of them. Um, and that, that's, I mean, really that's the development of the game. That's what we, that's just what we did. It was just over and over and over and over trying to, trying to, trying to break each, each one of them. Is there a point in time though, where having too many ideas is bad? Like you have to reach a point where you're like, no, 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 we have to kind of just develop tunnel vision and just stick to what we have. As opposed to being like, oh my gosh, what about this that we can put in the game and this we can put in the game. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, the spirit of what you're saying is correct, but I would say I, I would I would change that a little bit, and I would say that it's great to have as many ideas as possible. But then, to your point, it's it's about uh, sometimes keeping them to yourselves and and knowing when enough is enough that you've bitten off more than you can chew. But those ideas are important, and and I, I stress this because you're gonna run into problems in development that are you're gonna have unforeseen consequences. And you're going to sometimes find yourself backed into a corner and you're going to just, you're going to be glad that you have this toolbox of ideas sitting at the ready to jump in and save you, you know, like always having ideas and options available are great. And the, and keeping as many of those in a, in a, you know, a little bucket, a little jar is, is fantastic, but keep the lid on it until they're needed. Yeah, for sure. Right. Besides, um, Android Jones, was there any assets or anything that Retro gave to you to help with the development? Because obviously, this yeah. it, it, it looks like Prime 
like it looks like the prime games in turn from the from the gun you know to the certain layout uh the art style even to a certain extent so was that all just copying it like just looking at it and then all were they providing you with with sure. intel so to speak well retro uh, you know they provided us with a lot more than just assets i mean they they did send some assets um but i mean they they basically they gave us a template for the game mm. you know um so so they you know spiritually they did a ton of work for us um but every asset in the game we had to rebuild from scratch you know i mean the the you know, the, their their arm cannon might be fifty thousand tries. Ours might be two hundred. So, you know, it, you have to build from scratch. Um, but uh, but yeah, definitely. You know, they were the source of the art direction. You know, and the style. Uh, they were the. It was a living style guide, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what's 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 really cool is um, one of one of our artists. His name is uh, Nicholas Trahan. He uh, he did a lot of UI for for our games like you know, Wave Race and 1080 and stuff, and he actually uh, flew out to Austin for you know a year or six months or something, and and was working with with Retro to do the the visor um, for the Prime games. So he's the one that came up with the you know the the, the HUD for the visor with the you know the missiles and the health and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, he he had come back from from Retro. And then we're like, hey, we're going to make a Metroid game now. And so, hey, we, we got the guy. So then, you know, he obviously did our helmets and stuff. So uh, there's a lot of cross-pollinate, you know, pollination. Yeah, yeah. Was there anything uh, that you had to omit from the game just because of hardware limitations that, that you really wanted to put in, but like you just couldn't do it because of the limitations of the hardware at the time? Yeah. Um, man, I don't. I really don't think so. Uh, I could be that's, wrong, but that's good. I, I, I remember just, I think the, like our programmers did, they optimized the hell out of that game. Um, and we were able to do so much because we had such a talented programming team. Um, and our, and our artists were actually super skilled at working with very minimalist, you know, uh, polygons and color palettes and things like that. So we actually had, we had, I think, the best team in the world at that time to to work on lo-fi assets, as it were. And I think the game surpassed everyone's um, surpassed everyone's uh, dreams as to how that that game was going to look on that handheld. So mm. yeah, we were all incredibly proud of it. Um, I mean, we did. You know, we ended up sneaking in like voice chat during you know in the multiplayer and like all these these pie in the sky ideas. It was, it was fantastic. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I I'm proud. It's, it's my game. So I'm very proud of it, but, um, but truthfully, yeah. I mean, really the only thing that I would have liked to change about it would have been adding content, just having more time to, you know, have more unique bosses or, or uh, more single player custom content. And, you know, there's always, you're never done with a game, you know, you just, there's a date that you got to hit because it's got to be in those days, it had to be finished, done, done, because it had to get made and put, you know, you know, plastic had to get stamped and it had to get put into a box and a manual had to get written up. And um, so you were you were racing against the clock at all times and you just try your best to make something as good as you can, given the time. And you just hope people find enjoyment with it. Mm. 
I mean, over the years, I suppose, since you've been in the industry and, and, and a lot has changed, but in terms of the managing budget and the time constraints, have you found that easier? Is there certain skills that you've learned in, in terms of making that easier in terms of, because it's such a difficult balancing act, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, you said it like that. That's it. That's, that's all it is. It's a balancing act. And, um, you know, I, uh, one, one thing I think that's really helped make, um, that balance easier is the, uh, the, you know, the advent of modern engines like unreal. Um, if we're in a game today and we ship that game, we don't have to worry about what's the next engine we need to build from scratch for the next game. And, and we don't have to wait a month to see the character jump, like characters jumping within five minutes of starting the next project. And um, we can um, thoughtfully reuse assets um, and we can thoughtfully reuse camera systems. And there's, I think now the technology has kind of allowed for a much smoother uh, development and we can get to the core of the gameplay or the, or the, the, um, the, the gameplay challenge that we're trying to address much quicker now. Um, and so that allows for a lot more stuff to happen, but there's still that, that time where you got to remember, you just got to put a lid on it. You're like, all right, we're done. That's it. Uh, so, but, but yeah, we can do a lot more today than we could then. I mean, every tool that we use to make Metroid was written like, like while, as we needed it like while we're running to hit this target, you know, it's like, I need a cinematic editor guys. Like I want to put some cutscenes in the game. Well, somebody, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta think about what you need. You gotta, you gotta have a detailed plan for the stuff that you're asking a programmer to make for you. Like I want to be able to, you know, uh, move a camera, dolly a camera, change the field of view. I need to be able to cut. I need to be able to jump. I need to be able to um, fade in, fade out, you know, slow down, speed up time, pause time, all these things. And you got to think about how that's going to work. And then someone has to then just go build it on top of writing the AI routine for another creature, you know? And it's like, they're, they're working on code that like doesn't even really show up in the game, except for in the way of a cutscene, you know, like, um, so everything, everything that you write, and it's all done with tools that you're like working on the DS, like in a little way, you know, like it's insane. And, you know, when you used to hit play on the, on the, on the nitro, which was the, the dev kit, you know, you would have to like compile the game on your machine. So like, let's say like, let's say I've got like a little power up item and I want the player to like jump off, um, you know, uh, jump off like a ledge and jump and do a double jump and hit this thing. Right. Well, um, and metrics were a lot harder to hit back in those days um, because unless you had snap tools, you just didn't, you had to guess how, you know, like if you know your character can double jump four snaps, well, then you put your power up four snaps and hit it. But if you didn't have snaps back then, you had to just kind of eyeball where it went. So let's say I just miss it. Oh, man. Right. I got to stop the game, go back and change it, right? Recompile for 10 minutes go through this, the title screen, start up, fly over to the section, land there, kill all enemies in the room so they don't kill me, and then try to make my jump. Oh, I was so close, two pixels away. Ah, oh, stop the game, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, and you and you come home, or you know, you go to lunch, you're like, hey man, so how's your day been going? Like, good, I got that one power up in the position <laughs> of that double jump. 
Like I'm a hero, you know? And it's like, man, there's so much game to build, but I'm stuck getting this power up adjusted. Um, we don't really have those issues today, of which course. is, is, it's awesome, you know? So. A final question before I let you go is, so because you are designing games and the tech is always changing, plus I suppose you have to spend time with your family as well and you have to try and play games to try and keep up with what's going on. How do you manage all of that? Like I read recently that Peter Jackson has sold part of Weta to Unity, right? Which is going to change technology quite dramatically again because a lot of uh, film assets from Weta are going to be incorporated into the engine, which is probably going to make a dramatic change to the engine in question. So uh, <laughs> you've got to try and stay up with that, I'm sure, while trying to manage all these other things. How much of a difficult task is it? And how do you manage to stay on top of it? Yeah, well, I have no problem being a horrible husband and a terrible father. Um, uh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it really is a, it is a balancing act and it's tough. Um, you know, when you have to learn, you just go into a learning phase and you just try to absorb as much as you can. And then... Uh, when your day is done, you try and compartmentalize and stop it. And then let's move on to, um, you know, the next Lego project my son is working on and, and get excited about it. I think what, what makes it possible is just being able to be excited about whatever it is you're doing at the moment. Um, because I don't really think there is an actual way to balance all that stuff that you've said, because each one of those components is going to lack in some way. It's just about being able to get as much from it as you can with the time that you have with it and, um, and just be excited to be around it. So if it's learning time, be excited to learn it so that you learn as much as you can. If it's time with your family, be excited and be present. Um, if it's playing games, try to pick the short ones, you know, uh, <laughs> or, you know, get the achievements that you can and then just, and call it good, you know, because we only got so much, so much time in the world, you know. Totally, but are you able to be content with it, or are you ever overwhelmed and just like, oh my gosh, it's too much, too much? I'm having a blast. I, 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 I love my life, uh, it, even when it's it's tricky. I mean, that's that that's it's a lot more fun than being bored. Have you been bored? Like bored? Like when like, you just like nothing happens? It's awful. Like you know. Uh, and so always having a fire to put out actually, um, I think is, is kind of exciting. Yeah. Well, you always have high energy, which is good. I don't know how you maintain that, whether it's just excitement or Red Bull or something, I don't know, but, <laughs> but it's cool <laughs> to see. Glandular disorders. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's infectious. So, um, I appreciate it cause I feel like I've absorbed some of it. So thank you very oh, much good. for that. Good. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. Like I said, I, I can... <laughs> I can talk all day, so it's. I have to learn to put a lid on it sometimes, you know? <laughs> cool. So if anyone wants to keep up to date with what you're doing, is there any way they can do that? Anywhere they can go? Or is it all just... Um, no. You know, I used to I used to have a website. I used to tweet now and then. I don't really do that stuff, man. I, I, I really value my, my privacy. Um, and and I don't... And, and I don't, uh, and it's, I don't know, it maybe sounds a little weird, but I, I don't really think of it as my work. It's, it's really, you know, I would say if you're excited about stuff I'm doing, check out Gunfire Games. Like that's, 
that's the team that I work with and um, you'll find my stuff in there and you'll find the rest of our team's stuff in there. Um, you know, whatever I'm working on, it's always a, I mean, it's a team. I'm not like a, you know, like a, if I was a rapper or a singer or something, I'd say, yeah, follow me. But uh, I'd say fo follow our team. You know, that's, that's, that's where you're going to see the work anyway. Good way to put it. Well, Richard, thank you very much for taking time out of your day. I know this is this is game brainstorming time that I've taken. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. hopefully, um, you could make up for it by uh, brainstorming something great. I'm I'm sure, but uh, for sure, I appreciate I appreciate you taking the time out. Good, yeah, and I like I said, I hope my analogies made sense, and uh, I hope you know, I hope this was of, of value to whoever stuck in there and hung into the end. So. Mm. Yeah, thank, yeah, thanks for listening, I guess. Yeah, well, was, I definitely took a lot from it, so I'm sure other people will as well. So thank you very much. Cool. All right, well, that's the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe. Bye.